turn to Romans, and I will pray, and we will get going. Lord, we come to you now, and we are thankful for your word. We're thankful particularly tonight for the book of Romans, and uh, for your timing on the way you've worked out our schedules. Uh, Lord, we pray that tonight would be a time where you are glorified, as we are equipped and encouraged, and um, our eyes and our hearts are open to truth. And uh, particularly tonight, I pray that you would give us insight and wisdom regarding um, justification that we would otherwise not have. Uh, We love you and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in God's sovereign wisdom and timing, our Wednesday night teaching and our Sunday preaching have lined up. So I'm going to preach the next two weeks out of Romans, and then our Wednesday nights for the next two weeks are in Romans. So... You know, I planned that seven years ago when we started this process just to make sure it lined up. But now God is very, uh, I think, good uh, to, to give us such mercy and continuity. And so, um, as well, going into Romans means we're entering into a new section of our New Testament survey study. Matthew to Acts made up a session, um, a section called The Truth About Jesus. Romans through Philemon makes up a section called Key Ideas for the Times. And it's kind of interesting because Romans has been, um, and some of what you'll hear tonight you'll hear on Sunday, so spoiler alert, but Romans is known uh, by many and revered by many as the most important, greatest letter ever written. Um, It is Paul's masterpiece. It's systematic. It's cohesive. Um, It's literary genius, the way it moves, the the way... the, the connectivity in it is amazing, but for these two weeks on Wednesdays, we're like obliterating all the beautiful connectivity because we're doing an overview study. Now, we're not going to do that on Sunday. We're going to stick to a smaller amount of verses, but for Wednesdays, being an overview, it's a little bit different because we're doing an overview of something that is really designed to be just read with a perfect flow and, um, and a perfect connection. So, um, it's, it's, it's a little unique, but I think it'll be fruitful nonetheless. So, our background and our timeline... As we look at all these pastoral epistles and these letters that are written, you know, like Sunday we were in 1 Corinthians 15, tonight we're in Romans, I always want to remind everybody, myself included, that these letters weren't written like Paul didn't write to the Romans while he was in Rome. He didn't write to Corinth while he was in Corinth. And it's good for us to kind of zoom out, especially for an overview study, and consider where he's writing from. So Paul, the author, is writing this letter to the church in Rome, so believers in Rome, and he's from Corinth. So he's in Corinth, and he's writing to Rome in AD 57. So to gain perspective, consider these connections. In AD 53 to 55, Paul is serving in Ephesus and writes his first letter to the church in Corinth. So the first letter that he wrote was to Corinth. That's 1 Corinthians. And he wrote it while he was in Ephesus. And a year later, in AD 55 to 56, Paul moves northwest or northwest for y'all, to Macedonia, where he writes the second letter to the church in Corinth. And then a year later, in AD 57, Paul goes to Corinth after having written them two letters, and he writes to the church in Rome. And then five years after that, while he's still in Rome and in prison, is when Paul writes his letter back to Ephesus. So you see kind of a a circle there of him writing these letters from where he's at. He's kind of moving in this direction um, in that area. So what do we know about Rome and the church in Rome from previous sermons and previous studies? I want to start with what we know because we're not looking at something we've never seen before. A lot of us are fairly familiar with the book of Romans. So what do we know about Rome and the church in Rome from previous sermons and studies? 
Yeah, it's the center of the Roman Empire, the center of the most powerful kingdom in the world. It's probably made up of people who, or at least started by people who were at Pentecost. Yes, yes, the church in Rome was started by people who were likely at Pentecost in Acts. So it says there were visitors from Rome who came and heard about Jesus. The, the, uh, the, they start speaking where everyone can understand each other. Sort of the uh, Babel is reversed in that moment, and then they go back to Rome with this gospel that they heard from the um, sermon, uh, Peter's sermon at Pentecost. What else do we know? Rome and the Roman church. Yep. Yep. Yeah, after, after this time is when a lot of that happened, but it's because of this that a lot of that happened. The, the forward movement of the gospel, the, the Roman citizens didn't like it, and especially the Roman leadership, they didn't like it. So they would crucify Christians, they would feed Christians to the lions, they'd make them sort of a public spectacle on what not to talk about if you don't want to offend the Roman leadership. Who made up the church in Rome? We know where they came from, likely. From Pentecost, but who, who does that involve at this point when Paul's writing? Jews and Gentiles. That, yeah. Uh, you know, yeah, Jews and Gentiles that were converted. People took the message of the gospel that they heard at Pentecost and they went back to Rome and they shared that message, but they didn't just share it with Jews. It, it was shared with Gentiles. And so now the church is made up of Jews and Gentiles. And how did the Jews and Gentiles differ? Yeah, yeah, there isn't hardly a way in which they didn't differ. Jews and Gentiles differed greatly. So I want us to have all that in mind as we go into this. And tonight, our main focus in this overview study is going to be on the justification of sinners in the eyes of God. The justification of sinners in the eyes of God. Next week, we're going to talk about the justification of God in the eyes of sinners, which sounds really weird. Sounds like you shouldn't even title a study the justification of God in the eyes of sinners because who... Does God need to be justified in the eyes of sinners? But it's going to be helpful for uh, the flow of our study. Um, so we're, we're going to focus tonight on the justification of sinners in the eyes of God. And we're going to have six points that we're going to consider. And before we do, what is justification? Just in, in general, what is justification? Moving slowly doesn't help. It's uh, like you... I saw you coming through. Or creak, creak. <laughs> Welcome, Clay. I just always heard the, the little phraseology, just as if I never sinned. Huh. So it's like, because of what Christ did for us, it's yeah. as if I never sinned. Never heard that. I like that. <laughs> just as if I never sinned. Yeah. And why would we need to find that title? Because we have sinned. That's right. So justification in general is a defense for why something is the way that it is. And we, in our, in our culture, we have, usually it's a negative thing. Like, oh, you're just trying to justify how you feel or justify what you did or justify, you know, why you were wrong or justify your sin. We all, we, it seems like most of the times we see it, it's in a negative sense. But, but in general, it's a defense for why something is the way it is. If someone asks you a question and you give an answer to them, providing information to the question they, they asked, you're justifying whatever it is they asked a question about. So in general, that's what it means. Specifically here, <clears throat> it's how a person can be right with God or how a person can be declared right before God. Justification 
is how a person can be right with God. And Romans is all about justification. All about justification. And when we start talking, you know, regeneration and justification and sanctification, it can sound really heady and like it's for theologians and professors and stuff like that. When you talk about these, these uh, you know, things that are, that are words that sound almost abstract, almost not, not real, real particular, please know understanding justification, the need for justification, how justification happens is absolutely central and foundational to understanding the Christian faith. It's central and foundational to ever being able to share your Christian faith. You, you have no, no foundation to build upon if we don't understand about justification. And so Paul spends the large majority of the book talking about the different dynamics related to justification, how it happens, how we get it, how we don't get it. Um, and so it's very, very important for us to understand what justification is, how we can be, any person can be right with God. So as we read through these six things that we're going to cover tonight, I want for us to realize that this is great equipping for both understanding the basic beauties of the gospel and for effectively sharing the gospel through evangelism and through discipleship. So I want you to take notes. I want you to write these six things. I want you to take notes on the six realities of justification. And uh, this mic's ringing a lot, Cody. I don't know if you can hear it, but I can, and it's kind of driving me nuts. Um, but justification, these six things, I want you all to think of tonight's notes as like a handy tool that you'll, ha- you'll be able to have. When you're talking about gospel, you're talking about gospel life, what it means to have a gospel home, what it means to have a gospel marriage, what it means to turn from sin and walk according to the gospel. These six realities on justification will prove to be almost like a little cheat sheet that you could keep with you in your Bible or in your pocket or in your glove box for when you have an opportunity to share with someone the need for Christ and the hope that is found in the gospel. So the first detail of justification that I want us to consider tonight is all need to be justified because all sin. That's Paul's big focus in the first three chapters of Romans. All need to be justified because all sin. He starts off with this. He launches off into this because if you If you're going to talk about justification, you have to realize you're talking about everyone, so everyone needs to realize they're being talked about. So, you know, he he didn't want his hearers to hear this and go, oh, no, I'm good. And and some of them be like, "Ah, I think I'm good. And then others go, yeah, I probably need that. He wants to set the groundwork in these first three chapters that all need to be justified because all sin. Look at Romans 1.18. Our focus Sunday morning is going to be 1, 16, and 17 for the next two weeks. Um, But we're going to look at 18 through 23. All need to be justified because all sin. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. This is very helpful for me because for a large majority of my childhood, I heard about the love of God. And the love of God made a lot of sense to me. The sacrifice that Christ made because of his love overwhelmed me and I was encouraged. And then I heard about God's wrath and it didn't make sense to me because I saw all this reality of love and sacrifice and grace and mercy and I didn't understand wrath. This verse is the most helpful to me in understanding God's wrath because it explains who it's towards and why. The wrath of God 
is towards all ungodliness and unrighteousness. Who's guilty of ungodliness and unrighteousness? Everybody. And it's because it suppresses the truth. So if you're wanting to understand God's wrath or someone is trying to explain God's anger, make sure we're clear that the wrath of God, it's not just some flippant anger. It's not an anger where he flies off, he's lost his cool, or you've pushed God too far. God's wrath is surgical, and it is towards the unrighteousness and the ungodliness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. We're meant to be gospel sharers, ambassadors, proclaimers of gospel. When we move back and we move in sin, that sin turns the gospel into a lie. It makes it look like a lie. Our sin gets in the way of truth. So God's wrath is towards unrighteousness because unrighteousness suppresses truth. Why should you move away from unrighteousness? Because when you take part in unrighteousness, it suppresses truth. And that's the very thing that God's wrath is towards. So justification is very needed. It goes on to say, For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. Who's without excuse? Creation. The first few times I read through Romans, and the first few times I read through this section, I'm like, who are these idiots? These losers, these morons that would just ignore the beauty of God. It's humanity. All have sinned and fallen short. We know that. So it says, uh, they are without excuse. Who's without excuse? Everyone is without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. So what does that mean? Is it enough to know God? Apparently not. Because they did not honor God? They did not give thanks to God, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. And the next few verses show what follows such darkness in a, in a heart. You have this futile thinking leads to a darkened heart, and the next few verses show just the vile nature that, that just falls into place after that. So first, I want us to see what God's wrath is, because all need to be justified because of uh, the fact that we've all sinned. God's wrath is towards unrighteousness, because unrighteousness suppresses the truth. Now look over at um, three nine. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we've already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. Paul wants to make this clear in these first three chapters. No one is safe. Everyone is under sin. Jews and Greeks who make up this Roman church, all of you are under sin. He goes on to say, None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. And their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped. And the whole world 
may be accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. I want, what I want us to see here is just the reality that everyone, the whole world, Jew and Gentile, none is righteous, no, not one. But what I want us to see here is a little detail in verse 19. We know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. That's a really important phrase, really important verse. And what it indicates is that God has dealt with Israel in a way to where he speaks to everyone. Does that make sense? God has dealt with Israel in such a way as to get the whole world's attention. God has dealt with Israel, what he's communicated to those who are under the law. Because were the Gentiles under the law? They didn't. Do they know the law? Do they have access to the law? Do they have access to the people with the law? What we see here is we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. So watch my hands. Whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. God moving to a focus on the whole world after having such a particular focus on Israel was not an afterthought. It's been a plan for all of time. This has been a plan from the beginning. So he spoke to Israel, he dealt with Israel, he tended to Israel, and what he communicated through the law to Israel was meant to shut the mouth of the whole world because everyone has sinned. None is good. No, not one. The Psalms actually state this reality before Paul does in Romans. So if you're thinking, oh, well, Everyone being a sinner, everyone falling into unrighteousness, is this sort of a New Testament thing? Is it, did they just see Jesus and he was so righteous that then they were unrighteous and this was just kind of a new reality? And I want us to see, turn to Psalm 14. Um, there's other Psalms that talk about it, but we're just going to look at Psalm 14 because it's so, so connected to what we just read. Psalm 14, 1 through 3. The Psalms stated this reality before Paul. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. All need to be justified because all sin. This sin isn't a created problem because of a new solution. Paul's not trying to provide the new solution of Christ and then create a problem with the solution. Have you ever seen uh, like an inventor who has an amazing invention and then amazing invention, but then they kind of have to create a problem so that you want their invention? Have y'all ever witnessed that? Anyone think of any examples of that? Like... Like, have you ever been trying to smoke your cigarette and drink your coffee at the same time and realize you can't do both? Like, it's like, wait, no, I don't, I don't think I ever have. I don't, I don't think that's been a problem, not, not, not in the last decade. Um, there, uh, I was thinking of, uh, has anyone seen Office Space? Don't lie. Has anyone seen Office Space? Everyone, the jump to conclusions, Matt? <laughs> it's a jump to conclusions. He tries to create a problem because he has a solution that he thinks is great, but there was no problem before he had the solution. What I want us to see is that's not what Paul's doing here. Paul's not saying, hey, um, we've got a problem. You, you need to be justified, and then trying to create this reality that all have, in fact, sinned and fallen short of God's glory. It's an age-old problem. And what I want you all to think about is this. 
Paul's presenting this in the book of Romans, but Paul was convinced of this reality back when he was still a Christ-hating Pharisaical Jew. Does that make sense? The solution being Christ is new to Paul, and he's fully convinced of it, or else he would not open his mouth. But the reality is, is the belief that all need to be justified because all sinned is something that Paul was convinced of back when he was still a Christ-hating Pharisaical Jew. So 3.23 is the clearest. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The second thing is none will be justified by what they do. So all need to be justified because of sin, but none, no one, not one, will be justified by what they do. Again, 3.20, we already read it. It says, for by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. The law was good in that it brought a knowledge of sin, but sin was so corrosive that it would use even the law to, to spread in the lives of people. It's interesting. It, it actually looks hopeful for a moment in chapter 2 if you're reading it. Like, I think it's kind of funny the way Paul did it, but maybe that's just because I've spent a lot of time in, in Romans and I'm getting like Romans nerd humor. But in 2.13... It says, For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. Like That sounds, that sounds hopeful, right? Like It's not the hearers of the law. It's not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. I mean, the natural conclusion when you read that verse is, oh, okay, so the doers of the law, they're going to make it. They're going to be, all have sinned, all need to be justified, But the doers of the law, that's who's going to make it. And he goes on in verse 17, But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know His will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law, and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? Oh, man. Okay, things are going south in that verse. It's like, hey, the doers of the law will be justified. He's like, by the way, you, you guys, you know the law, right? You teach the law. You lead the children. You lead the blind. You lead, the fo- you lead those who have these needs. When you're doing all that, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You say that, no one, must, uh, that one must not commit adultery. Do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boasts in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. The law won't bring righteousness and justification. The point is that if if you could obey the law perfectly, you could justify yourself by obeying the law perfectly. But the reality is that nobody has ever perfectly obeyed the law, so it's impossible to justify yourself through it. That may sound boring. That may sound like, yeah, yeah, okay, we can't do it. This is central to Christian faith. You have to be justified. The only way to be justified is perfect obedience to the law. You don't give it the college try. It doesn't happen for anyone. You cannot be justified by anything you do. You cannot be justified by the law. So this brings us to our third point. 
I'm moving through my notes more quickly, quickly than ever. We may have like nap time at the end of this thing. Sinners can be justified only because of Christ's person and work. This is central to Christian faith. All of sin, all, all need justification is all of sin. You'll never be justified by what you do. Sinners can be justified only because of Christ's person and work. Look at 23 through 25a. 3.23, again, this whole section, very important. It says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. A propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. It's only because of Christ's person and work that we can be justified. We're getting serious now, breaking out the tattered Pilgrim's Progress. We're going to read from it tonight. You like that bookmark? My daughter made that for me. Um, in, in Pilgrim's Progress, a guy named John Bunyan... Um, for, who's read this? Who's read Pilgrim's Progress? So everyone who's seen Office Space has read Pilgrim's <laughs> Progress. It's, it's a good combination. I think you're wise for that. Um, so Pilgrim's Progress is written by John Bunyan, and the point is it is a, um, a, a oh, what's the word? A, a, it starts with an A. Allegory. Thank you. Um, I would have gotten there, but not that quick. I appreciate that. Um, it's an allegory. And so the, the point is, is there's the story of Christian who is on his journey, his faith journey, to get to the celestial kingdom. And so at one point, he loses sight of the reality that sinners can be justified only because of Christ's person and work. He's been told by evangelists to go by the narrow way and enter the narrow gate. You can only move toward the celestial kingdom. You can only be rid of this burden. He's got a pack. Christian, imagine a guy carrying a huge pack. He's carrying this huge burden. And the evangelist tells him, you have to enter by the narrow gate. But he gets distracted on his way to the narrow gate by Mr. Worldly. Do you know who Mr. Worldly represents? The world. Thank you. Yeah, it's, see, it's an allegory. And it's not a mysterious allegory. He's very, very clear. Mr. Worldly represents the worldly, who would say, get rid of your burden by entering the narrow gate? That's ridiculous. And so he takes advice from Mr. Worldly, and he finds himself in a pilgrim's progress pickle. And so um, we are going to read here and see what happens. It says, uh, so turning out of the way he was going, because he listened to Mr. Worldly, Christian went toward Mr. Legality's house for help. So he's moving towards legality to get rid of this burden. It's an allegory. So legality represents legality. But when he reached the hill, it seemed so high. And the side of the hill that was next to the pathway had such a great overhang, the Christian was afraid to venture farther, farther lest the hill should fall on his head. So he's climbing, 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 and this hill climbs is so far, so steep, it comes back over his head, like you'd see Ninja Warrior, you know, American Ninja Warrior, that the wall, where it, it's so tall it curves back. This is worse. 
And so he, he's going and he's worried that it's going to fall on his head. So he stood still there, not knowing what to do. Furthermore, his burden now seemed heavier to him while he was in his original, than while he was in his original course of travel. So as he's going forth, now he's frightened because he's going up this hill of, toward legality. And the burden is getting heavier and fear is overcoming him. Flashes of fire came out of the hill, making Christian afraid he would be burned. <clears throat> Here, therefore, he sweat and shook with fear. And now he began to worry that he had taken Mr. Worldly Wise Man's advice. He then saw evangelists coming to meet him, and at the sight of him, Christian was ashamed and began to blush. Now, just real quick, what do y'all think that hill of flames represents? Flaming hill of legality. It's a mount. Mount Sinai, for the love. Climb into the story with me, will you? It's Mount Sinai. So he, he's, he's embarrassed as the Mr. Evangelism come, draws near and near, coming up to him. He looked upon Christian with a severe and dreadful expression. He then began to reason with him. What are you doing here, Christian? Saying, Christian, you don't belong on Mount Sinai. You don't belong going towards Mr. Legality's house. What are you doing here, Christian? At those words, Christian did not know how to answer, so he stood speechless before him. Then Evangelist said, Aren't you the man I found crying outside the walls of the city of destruction? Yes, sir, I'm the man, admitted Christian. Didn't I advise you of the way to the small, narrow gate? Questioned Evangelist. Yes, sir, said Christian. How then is it that you so quickly turned aside, asked Evangelist, for you're now out of the way? You were on the way, now you're out of the way. How did you so quickly turn aside? And the evangelist tells a story about engaging Mr. Worldly advice. And then the evangelist proceeds and responds. He says, now there are three things in this man's counsel you must absolutely despise, continued evangelist. First, his act of turning you out of the way. Second, his work to render the cross offensive to you. And third, his way of setting your feet in the path that leads to the administration of death. Legality is not able to set you free from your burden, Christian. No one has ever been delivered from his burden by legality, by the law. No, nor is it ever likely to happen. You can't be justified by the works of the law, for no one living can be loosed from his burden by the deeds of the law. An evangelist said to him, Your sin is very great, for because of it you have committed two evils. You've forsaken the good road, and you've begun to walk in forbidden paths. Yet the man at the gate will receive you, for he favors mankind. Only take heed that you don't turn aside again, lest you perish from the way. Then Christian committed himself to go back, and after evangelist had kissed him, he gave him one smile and bid him Godspeed. So Christian went on with haste, without speaking to anyone by the road. And if anyone asked him something, he would not condescend to answer. He walked like one who was constantly treading on forbidden ground and could by no means consider himself safe until he once again got onto the road that he left in order to follow Mr. Worldly Wise Man's advice. That, that last picture is one of the most beautiful pictures of repentance. That's, that's what we do when we repent and we give up our own works. We give up our own plans. We give up trying to 
follow the law or create our own law that we can follow. He walked like one who was constantly treading on forbidden ground and could by no means consider himself safe until he once again got onto the road that he left to follow Mr. Worldly Wise Man's advice. When you've gone down the road of sin, down the road of worldliness, down the road of riches, down the road of however people seek it, which we're going to talk about in a minute, the beautiful picture of repentance is walking as though you're constantly treading on forbidden ground until you get back to the path, until you get back to what you know is right and what is true. Christian, feeling the weight and burden of a sin before God, knowing his needs to be justified, made a bad decision, but thankfully someone told him the truth of the gospel. The way is to enter by the narrow gate, and that gate is Christ. Look at Romans 4.25. Sinners can be justified only because of Christ's person and work. Romans 4.25 says, or it starts in 22, that is why faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours. It would be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up, delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Look at 5.6. It says, For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. And look at verse 9. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood... Much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if, if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Sinners can be justified only because of Christ's person and work. And now the fourth thing, Sinners will be justified only through faith in Christ. So you have Christ's work, which is here, but then sinners will only be justified through faith in Christ. What are some ways that people wrongly try to lay hold of this gift? We've stated that faith is the only way. What are some other ways that people try to wrongly lay hold of this gift? Through works. What are some works that people sometimes try to do to lay hold of this gift? Benevolent type things. Yeah. Large sums of money to yeah. Things. Yeah. Benevolence. Giving lots of money. Being charitable. Asceticism. Asceticism. How so? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, asceticism, just trying, go, going through the, the motions of, of what you've heard. Well, how else might we try to lay hold of the gift the wrong way? Just being moral? Just being moral? Yeah. Just be a good person. Don't be a bad person. And how do we define what a good person and a bad person is? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting because if that's our, if if that, where to go? Yeah, yeah. If if that's the means by which we say what is good and bad, things are certainly changing. You know, it's sort of like what's good and bad. What do people generally accept as good and bad? Well, culture certainly changing, so that's a terrible meter by which to read that. How else might we wrongly try to lay hold of that gift? 
Yes. Yeah. Approval and acceptance of others or from others. Yeah, there's people who like create their own little group. And as long as we all agree on what we agree on, then we're good. We're justified. This is why we are what we are. Um, I found this to be um, very true. Um, my grandmother, you know, she has, you know, if we talk about faith issues and we have a disagreement and I try to respectfully explain something, I'll hear about, you know, Torchy and Jeanette and these others that are, that see it the way she does. And, well, this is what we do and this is how we are and this is how we move. Well, and so that's a great, that's super insightful where you try to, as long as you have a group that agrees with what you agree on, then that's the means by which we're justified. It's not abnormal and it's not limited to grandma. A lot of other people do that. How have they done it in the past? Like, think about all the cultures everywhere in the world trying to lay hold of justification, the gift. Works. works. Yeah, just works. How else? Separate yourself from the people who don't try. Yes, as long as you separate yourself from those bad people, you must be justified. I tried that in junior high and high school, and it pretty much didn't work. Yeah. All about penance. So what does that mean? It's like they try to be a stretcher to yourself almost. Like yeah. you're being so sacrificial yeah. physically yeah. to earn the respect of God. Yeah, yes. Yeah. Self sacrificing endeavors to try to become justified. Yeah. 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 There's rituals, mass. I've got family that is very Catholic, and mass is a big, big deal. And there, that can that can be a means by which you're just seeking justification through mass. Um, circumcision. That's the obvious one for Jews, right? That circumcision would be the means by which you lay hold of it. Walking down an aisle. Morality. Baptism. Think about that. I mean, I meet with people all the time. I got baptized and I know I'm saved. Okay, was there any faith before you got baptized? I don't know. I'll have to ask my grandma. Okay, we, so that, that's all, you were trying to utilize baptism as a means to lay hold of justification, potentially. And you've got to walk through that very, very, very carefully. And approval and acceptance of and from others. Look at 4.1. It says, what then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted him as righteousness, just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. 
He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he, had, that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well. This is an important point for us. God is not changing the rules of the game. This is how it has always been. It has always been by faith. If you want to know, how did people in the Old Testament get saved? How, did they, how were they justified? It's by faith in God. By faith in God's promises. By faith in God's promises for a Messiah. By faith in God's deliverance. It was always by faith. This isn't a changing of the rules by God. Dever notes Abraham's belief and consequent justification came before he was circumcised. Now, I don't want to get real graphic here, but there's a very practical, maybe even pragmatic like, way to picture this. Like, Think about what circumcision is. We all clear on that? You would have to have faith to take a knife to yourself, right? Of course it was faith first. Of course it was through faith, or else they never would have obeyed the call for circumcision. The faith came first, so the justification through faith came first. This wasn't a switcheroo. Paul seizes on the chronological order of these two events as, a cru- as crucial for understanding the Old Testament and salvation. So look back at 116. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith, for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And then in 322, 322, it says, The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Christ's work provides the grounds for our justification while faith provides the means. Christ's work provides the grounds for our justification while faith provides the means. The fifth thing is all kinds of sinners can be justified. Paul wants to make this clear in his letter. All need justification because all are sinners. None will be justified what they do. Sinners can be justified only because of Christ's person and work. Sinners will be justified only through faith in Christ. And Paul wants us to know that all kinds of sinners can be justified. Look at 330. We'll start in 29. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Look at 4.11. All kinds of sinners can be justified. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. Now read this with the song Father Abraham had thought in, in, in your mind. Father Abraham. You know the song? Fantastic. The purpose was to make him the father of all who would believe without being circumcised, so that righteousness would be counted to them as well, and to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. This is the meaning behind that kid's song, Father Abraham. 4.17 says, 
As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence things that do not exist. This is good news because of the previous point about everyone needing justification. He's the father of many nations. He brings us in. So when we sing Father Abraham with the kids, we're not saying Father Abraham to the Jews who were his actual children. We're saying Father, like he is our father. He is our father in the faith. Abraham's blessing to many nations includes us. And so all kinds of sinners can be justified, and this wasn't an afterthought. That's the way it was through Abraham. The plan was that Abraham would be a blessing to the nation. So the beauty that exists and the reality that we all need justification is that justification is available for all kinds of sinners. Look at 5, 12, and 19. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. If we stop there, this would be a real bummer of a study because everyone's a sinner and everyone's going to hell and there's no hope. But we have 519 that says, For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. The universality of death proves the universality of sin, right? If you are talking with someone and they don't believe in sin, you can take them to the reality of death. No one's escaped it. Christ escaped it. So that should get our attention. The reality of death is the the universality of, of death proves the universality of sin. The curse and contagion of sin spread to all nations. So the good news of salvation by faith in Christ Jesus is meant for all nations as well. This should stir you to have a bigger heart for other people of every kind. This should stir you to want to engage and connect with people who don't look like you and vote like you. This should stir you to be open-minded, open-hearted, and eager to engage people with truth that you may not otherwise normally engage because the, the, news, the good news of salvation by faith is meant for all nations. The last one is that justification is by faith alone, but justifying faith is never alone. Justification is by faith alone, but justifying faith is never alone. Some, upon hearing of this justification that exists outside of you, it's something that someone else does, it's something that this Jesus does to make you right before God, some upon hearing that, Hearing about what happens outside of us make terrible assumptions about what might go on inside of us. The thinking goes something like this. If grace increases where there is sin, should I not sin all the more? If Christ justifies, and I have faith in the reality that Christ justifies, and I believe I can't justify myself, should I not only stop trying to justify myself, but do whatever the heck I want, because Jesus is going to justify me. That's the human condition when you're in sin. You make stupid streams of thought and decision-making in that manner. I'm not going to justify myself anymore. Only Jesus can justify me. But if I know that Jesus justifies, should I not, or can I not, do whatever the heck I want? Because where sin increases, grace increases all the more. How about I be the guy that makes a really big deal of grace by being a huge sinner that's covered in the grace? I'll be the example. That's the kind of thinking that sin leads you in. Justification is by faith alone, but justifying faith is never alone. You can't have justifying faith without it having an effect on your life. 
Paul's emphatic answer to that question, should I just sin more so that grace increases? His emphatic answer is, no, you're an idiot. By no means. Let it never be. May it never work that way. Look at 6.2. We'll start in verse 1. Dead to sin, alive to God. We've seen death in Adam, life in Christ, justification that comes to many nations. It only happens through Christ. And Paul has what's called a diatribe where he asks questions and then answers his questions as though he's having a conversation with himself like a crazy person. But he's not a crazy person. He's just really smart and helping the Jews and Gentiles work through all the questions they might have. So we have all this stuff. Abraham, faith that existed before circumcision, the father to many nations, Father Abraham, who's the father to all those who have faith, not just those who are circumcised, the father to the uncircumcised, peace with God through faith, death in Adam, life in Christ. Verse 1 of chapter 6, what then shall we say? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? That is the thought of a sinner. By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? How can we who died to sin still live in it? Look at verse 12. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. And then 17 through 18 says... But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. Obedient from the heart, slaves of righteousness. And then verse 23 says, For the wages of sin is death. If you say you're justified, if you say you have justifying faith, but you just continue to live in sin and do not try to put your, your sin to death? Do not try to be obedient from the heart? You do not have justifying faith because the wages of sin is death. That does not mean there's not a struggle. That does not mean there's not something that you're looking forward to, to be delivered from. That does not mean there's not something that you see in the future that will be utterly fulfilled because of faith. But here, the wages of sin is death. The free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The point is that justifying faith always results in a changed life. Justifying faith always results in a changed life. We're going to talk a lot more about this on Sunday. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes. Well, spoiler alert for Sunday, that's salvation... That's not getting lost people saved. That's bringing saved people to salvation that we're talking about there. So the gospel is to have an effect on your life, an effect where there is a change in your life. If as a Christian you're so defeated that you feel like you cannot ever really change, you've lost sight of God's gospel intentions in your life. It's a struggle. Rest assured. There's a struggle between the flesh and the spirit. There's a struggle to present your members to the spirit for life or to the flesh for death. There's a struggle, but there's a reality that we don't need to lose sight of, that God's gospel intentions for your life are change. The gospel changes people. We can be assured that whatever God knows we need for accomplishing His purposes, He will graciously give. Christ alone can be trusted. I've been studying um, George Mueller and his life, and is from the 1800s, and he had a heart for... um, for orphans and wanted to help them. 
and he decided he wasn't going to ask God for, or he wasn't going to ask people for donations. He was just going to ask God for everything they needed. Sounds like a terrible business plan, a terrible plan to open an orphanage. I mean, if ever someone could appeal to the hearts of people to give, it would be for orphans, right? But his, goal, his thought was, you know what, I'm going to open up an orphanage. I'm going to take care of these children, and I'm going to do so because I believe, because of the gospel truth all throughout Scripture, that God is a God who provides us what we need if we need it. If God says, ask and you'll, you'll receive, and you have not because you ask not, I believe that God provides us with what we need. And that's a, that's a gospel truth, not just sort of a side little life issue. That's a gospel truth. And so the long story, the long story short, he opened up one home for orphans and another home and another home and another home and another home and had over a thousand orphans in his care and he never asked for money because he trusted that God would give him what he needed to do what he was called to do. He wanted to be an example of that. People would be like, why aren't you asking for money? People would ask to see the finances, to see what they needed. And he would be like, I am praying to God to give us what we need. And he would pray to God and crazy things would happen when he prayed. One day he was sitting with the children around the table and there was no milk for breakfast. And he said, is our God a good God, children? They said, yes, he's a good father. He said, well, then let's pray to God and ask for some milk. I mean, that's some faith to believe that if God calls you to something, he's going to give you a means. And so he prays, Lord, this morning we need milk. Amen. Doorbell rings. Milk truck broke down outside of the orphanage, has to offload all the milk to fix the truck, and all the orphans get free milk. Now, that's a pretty sensational story, right? This is a story about that these kinds of things happened over and over in this guy's life. He kept a journal, and at the end of his life, his journal had 50,000 answered prayer requests, 30,000 of which happened in the same day. Many of those 30,000 happened where he realized God must have already been doing something before he even prayed so that the prayer request could be met. He would pray, Lord, we need $1,000 to get the children uh, new linens. And then that day he would receive a check from the Netherlands for $1,000 because God woke some rich guy up in the middle of the night and said, you need to give to these orphans in Bristol. He, his whole life, this, this little quote at the end, we can be assured that whatever God knows we need for accomplishing his purposes, he will graciously give. George Mueller lived by that. As I'm studying it, I'm just thinking, do I trust God or am I leaning on my own works? Because that's not just a life issue. It's not just a lifestyle issue. It's a gospel issue. Do you believe that God, that Jesus Christ, is the only way for you to be justified? Then why would you try to accomplish all these gospel things on your own? We can trust God. We can trust God. We all need to be justified because we've all sinned. None will be justified by what they do. Sinners can be justified only because of Christ's person and work. Sinners will be justified only through faith in Christ. All kinds of sinners can be justified, and justification by faith alone, justification is by faith alone, but justifying faith is never alone. God changes us. He causes our lives to be different. So as we read, if you just, I would encourage you, I challenge you all to read through Acts. I challenge you even more to read through Romans. It is wonderful in understanding how faith works, how it has worked before the New Testament, how it will work for eternity, what God's plans are for the Jews, what God's plans are for evangelism. God can be trusted. 
I'm telling you that my, my faith has been quickened in the last four weeks as we're working through Acts and Romans. God can be trusted, and we should go to him in prayer and trust him for what we need provision for. He's a good God who loves his children, and he shows us that through how we're justified by Christ alone. Let's pray. Lord, you're very good. You are very good. Lord, we stand as sinners who cannot justify ourselves, but we also are here in the redemption of Christ. Lord, help us to be blown away by this reality of the power of the gospel that counts us righteous and makes us righteous. Help us not to be the kind of people that go and rely on the flesh. Help us to be people who are faithful, who rely on the Spirit, who do not indulge in the flesh, who do not try to be justified by the works of the flesh, who do not engage in fleshly things, who, not, who don't dismiss the beauty of creation and the beauty that surrounds us that speaks of your goodness. Lord, help us to be people who are mindful that your wrath is still towards unrighteousness. Your wrath is still towards um, unholy living that suppresses truth. Help us to be mindful when we are suppressing the truth by walking in the flesh. Lord, we are so thankful that we are justified through Christ alone by faith. Lord, these are foundational realities that should affect every day. They're foundational realities that we should think about tonight as we lay in our beds. Lord, I don't know if I've done justice to this truth, but I pray that the Holy Spirit would take this truth and invade our thoughts and our hearts, change the way we think, change the way we live, and make us that much more thankful for Christ so that we cannot help but speak to those who have not heard, so that we cannot help but speak when our brothers and sisters need encouragement. In light of this, I pray that we would have a proper view of the nations, a proper view of those who disagree with us, a proper view of how to engage in conversations that are gospel-centered. We love you, Lord. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.